Hello, welcome to the Game Dev London podcast. Uh, my name is Oscar uh, Oscar Clark. I can't even say my name today. My name is Oscar Clark, and I've been involved in game development for oh, many too too many years. Um, game Dev London is a fantastic community of creative and uh, passionate game developers who just love making games, uh, but not necessarily just stuck in London. Uh, it's a, a community of lots of people. What I'm going to try and do in this series of podcasts is to ask a question. Um, you know, what do you want to know about game development? So I'm going to try and answer it by telling you everything you want to know about game development, but never dared to ask. Uh, the first session, this one, is going to be asking who we're making games for. So I'm delighted that I've got Annie here. Uh, and Annie, I'm going to show you on the screen. Uh, Annie is joining us. Uh, Annie's from Perpetual Hi. Games. Hey, Annie. Um, so do you want to tell people who you are and what you do? Hi, my name is Annie Grudeva. I am creative director at Perpetual Games. We are working on our first um, first person RPG called Elegos. Um, it's coming early next year. It's going to have a very strong modding aspect. And also, uh, I'm founder of Pixel. Pixel is a um, diversity and inclusion database that has information not only about how to make games more diverse and inclusive, but also practices that studios can adopt to make everyone feel welcome. Sounds fantastic. Exactly the kind of stuff that we need more of. Uh, we have, a, I think, an amazing um, point in history where almost everybody is playing games. I think one of the sort of things about the pandemic is we've just suddenly realised that games is now part of our cultural DNA in a way that I think, I think people like yourself and me have known for years, but I think a lot of people haven't really understood. And I think the pandemic has been such a, a kind of obvious mechanism of us having to use digital connections. And what a better way than to do it through play. Do, do you think that's fair? Oh, absolutely. I, I, the pandemic honestly brought me one of the biggest wonders that I never, ever expected is going to happen in my life. My mother asked us to play a video game. <laughs> and I was honestly, I was honestly stupefied because I was like, I don't know what my mom can play, <laughs> you, you know, like from controls to story to everything else, you, you know, you're not prepared for that kind of question. But I think this takes us back to the point of what we're trying to explore in this particular session, which is who are we making games for? And I think mm. one of the um, one of the sort of problems I have when I have games pitched to me is quite often it's obvious that the person making the game is making the game for themselves. And mm. um, as we are both trained as marketeers. So uh, I'm, uh, I trained as a marketeer originally, so I have formal training and actually I'm a member of the Charter Institute of Marketing. I've left up my name for that particular thing, not that that matters for anything. But I found it a hugely beneficial process to get me able to make good decisions in game design as well, I think. Um, and I think you've got a background in marketing as well. Do you want to talk, talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so... Um... In my 20s, I actually worked in some of the biggest advertising agencies in London as, as a creative, and I worked on some pretty big campaigns for companies like PayPal and Amazon. Um, and it was a very good lesson in how to actually talk to people and how to sell to people, because most people actually do not care about whatever you're doing. You might be making a cure for cancer, and I promise you 95% of people will not be interested in whatever you're making. No, I completely agree. And it's really interesting because um, I'm a big believer in kind of thinking about, well, the very first thing I was taught on my first day in marketing was identify and satisfy consumer needs. Now, mm. you just swap out that word consumer with player uh, or whatever else. Um, you know, you're basically, we're trying to find out what people want and how do we fulfill it in a good and satisfying way. Um so I think that's a, an incredible driver for my thinking in terms of when I'm looking at game design, if I don't know who it is I'm um, trying to build something for, if I don't separate my own personal desire as a maker with the desires and, and expectations of the player, um, and I don't ask the important question you just hinted at, which is like, so what? Why should I care? Uh, if I don't ask that why, do I, why should I care question, I've got no chance of making a decent game, I think. I mean, would you agree with that? Or have you got different ways of looking at it? 
Yeah, I think it's it's very important to say before we say anything that creation for, there is nothing wrong with creation for creation's sake. I think Fair. every every creative person, whatever discipline it is, including game designers, and I consider even programmers to be incredibly creative, sometimes I have the need to just create for creation's sake. And that is a very valid experience. Completely valid. Yeah, and, and then moving from that, there is a difference between making making something to enjoy yourself and making a commercial product and by commercial product i mean do you intend for this thing to make money yeah. and that's where i think there is a lot of room for discussion because it is very important creation for creation's sake is very important just to keep you sane sometimes like i i would you know the kind of games that i enjoy making and the kind of games that i am directing is very different and thank god because like having that little bit of a divide keeps me sane and allows yeah. me to try new techniques and, and that sort of stuff. And one influences the other, obviously. Um, I, can I chuck in an, another variation on that theme? Because I think mm. you, creation for creation's sake, I think is a really powerful and, and, and an important idea. And, and you're right. Because I, I move swiftly on to the next one, I, I probably don't give that enough time. And I, I want, I just want to make sure people understand I do get that. I yeah. spend far too much of my personal life making board games that will never get finished. Um, the second stage, I think, is creating creation and creativity for communication. And that's not quite the same as the commercial one, although obviously I'm a guy with a hat who wants to make money out of games. Of course I want to make the commercial game. But I think we should also pay homage to the fact that sometimes you've got creation for as a communication exercise. Mm. But I think even there, we still need to know who the audience is. Is that is that fair? Absolutely. Like even creation for creation's sake, you're the audience, you know, and it's you're always making something for someone and the purpose can be different. And obviously all of these different routes overlap massively. You know, sometimes you might, you know, you might start with something that you want to get an idea across and ends up being a project that you create for yourself. You know, vice versa, you might start with something that you've identified there's this gap in the market and I'm going to attack the gap in the market. I don't care how I feel about it. I'm just going to make a lot of money. But it turns out you're having way too much fun. You don't produce anything viable, but you've had fun and that's absolutely valid. So it's it's very messy. But yeah, at the end of the day, you are you have to think about why you're making this. And then once you figure out why, then the next question is for whom? And I'd go a little bit further because I think that you make better decisions if you frame them through the idea of the player. Um, so when I'm when I'm trying to decide the vision of a game, part of that process is deciding what I'm making it for. So communicating ideas. I want to win awards. I, I'm never going to win awards. I don't even know why I mentioned that one. Uh, it could be I want to make money. It could be I want to communicate uh, a, something new about a game mechanic. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of reasons I might be making a game, but I I've got to see that through. I think through the lens of the player. And I think mm. by the more I know about that player, the more I understand that player, the easier it is for me to say, is this function feature whatever it is going to be getting me closer to that player. Is it getting me close to the satisfying that need that I have to make as well as the need that the player has to play? Does, does yeah. that work with you? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I find it's also, especially with, with young young designers and young people who get into the games industry, I notice this fascination with like wanting to really work on a title that they deeply care about because they have that connection. And I find that's that's a very dangerous territory to venture to because you can get the same enjoyment of job well done working on a title that maybe you don't care as much about, but you have done a good job on. So I find it's it's such a it's such a weird territory. It, it sometimes even allows you to look at it with much more like cleaner mind than no, completely, completely. And actually, I'd go further. I found oddly. The games that I love, I'm worse at designing than the games that I have no interest in. So, for example, I don't care about sport particularly. I'm not, you know, yeah. I, I like watching football at the pub, um, but I cannot. I've got too much of my brain dedicated to working out how games work. I cannot learn who's on what football team. But oddly, I've done quite a good job on football games historically. Yeah. Weirdly, don't ask me how. I think it's first this, like a scientist, not yeah, like a fan. That, yeah, no, exactly that. And I think that that isn't that 
Oh, that is such a that is so deeply rooted in the way I like to think about game design. For me, yeah. design is a hypothesis, and I've got mm. to test it. And yeah. I think what I've learned personally recently is is just the way that the hypercasual game has completely shifted my mindset. Even though I don't make hypercasual games generally, I'm I'm not after mm. making long term retention games. But the the techniques of testing early before you've even got a game, I think it's amazing. Yes. Absolutely love it. And it, it means I, I don't have to spend, you know, X thousand, hundreds of thousands, millions of pounds to get to the point where I know the game is going to be liked by anyone. I can yeah. spend 50 quid and find out. <laughs> just, just don't get your friends to test it because they'll tell oh. you it's great. <laughs> Oh, 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 actually, my friends tell me how terrible it is, whether it's terrible or not, but that's just because they <laughs> like me. Oh, something like that. So um, let's let's think about this thing. This audience, we've understand we need to know who, something about the audience. How do we know anything about an audience? I you know, I've, I think we were chatting about it before we started the recording. It's it starts from somewhere, someone you know. That's always, for me, like obviously you can read a lot of research online you can research communities that's absolutely valid but i found for me the easiest thing is start thinking about someone you know like say for example with elegos one of the core things for me when when i was designing the game was i want a game that anyone can play that's a very general statement but for me then i change it to i want anyone from any physical ability to be able to play it and that is accessibility as well as thinking about people who ha for example don't have the hand-eye coordination that a lot of you know long-term seasoned gamers have so rather than having a you know a difficulty slider that makes the enemies easy and gives you you know unlimited health or whatever it's instead think about designing the game in a way that you know if you can only click with a mouse and you can muster you know the last keys you can still enjoy the game just as much as someone who spent the last 30 years playing RPG games and yeah. they don't even think about which key they need to press. So that was very, very key for me. You know, one of the people was actually thinking about my mom and thinking mm -hmm. about like, how cool would it be if I make something that my mom can play through um, without, you know, diluting the story, without diluting the controls, but instead think about what does an interaction look like if you don't have that ability? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I have a slightly different take on it. Um, I, by the way, I love the fact that you're picking real people. I think that's brilliant. But I like to think about stereotypes. Mm. Uh, I know that uh, it's not a good thing to pick on stereotypes normally, but as a starting place, I like to start yeah. looking at some stereotypes. Um, and I, I often find it useful... Um, to use some of the models that are out there. I mean, for example, we a lot of game designers use the Bartle models, the kind of achiever and the um, socializer. And the, uh, anyway, there's. I, I used to know these things off by heart, but um, one of the issues I have with that particular model, and this is something I'm just quoting what Richard Bartle himself has said, is mm. it, it was a model that was intended as a based on an analysis of behaviour of a particular bunch of people playing a particular type of game and. And it's it's possible to extrapolate that. Uh, there are there are some great models that have extrapolated that further, um, and even more recently, we've seen some of the big data companies like um, Game Refinery and, and and actually Newzoo. And in fact, I'll uh, I'll, I'll put up uh, an example on the uh, on the screen of um, uh, the Newzoo guys if my mouse uh, works. Um, so the Newzoo guys put up a kind of like. Uh, the changing game, the face of game enthusiasts, and they talk about things like the ultimate gamer, the all-round enthusiast, uh, popcorn gamer. I think some of these stereotypes are quite useful as a starting point, mm. but if you just leave it there, you don't know enough about them. And I think there's a couple of things I want to know more. I like to name them. Yeah, I like to say this is George. My George is my popcorn gamer. Now, who is that person I know that's like George? Mm. And I think that's where I kind of come back to where you were coming from. This like, who is it? Yeah. You know? But I find that if I start with a stereotype and then match them to a person, it's a little easier. Now, I happen to know that my George happens mm. to be somebody who uh, he works in IT recruitment. Um, he is uh, 35. He's got um, a wife and two kids and a dog. 
Um, I know that he used to play a lot more first-person shooters, but hasn't for a long time and knows he's not very good anymore. But he tries to pretend he doesn't like them because of that, because he can't play them. You know, I happen to know those things about that person who's not called George, by the way. God, um, George is approaching midlife crisis a little bit too quickly. <laughs> a little bit too quickly. Well, no, but he's he's playing a lot of lot of sort of simple games. And uh, anyway, um, but but that's just so I know a little bit about George's. You know, kind of how much disposable income is somebody like George likely to have? Where, mm. what languages do they speak? What is their cultural norms? These kind of things start to become kind of useful for me. So I can try to think about how much can I push their kind of their cultural boundaries? How can I, you know, diversify that? But do you just have one person in mind when you're looking at a game? I personally have three. I can explain why later. But for yourself, I mean, how are you looking for just one person what kind of information are you thinking about it's, it's very funny usually for me mm. it's free as well ah, okay. um, and in my mind i always divide them by their ability to play the game mm. you know where you know my mom is on one end of the scale and then you know some of my typical gamer male friends are at the other end of the scale and then there is the person in the middle who's like mm. usually someone like me or some of my other friends who, who are like curious, but a little bit self-conscious about it. I find that's a very interesting area to explore just because enabling people like that, um, if they feel good about the game, you convert them into one of the biggest, you know, most dedicated fans ever. No, I completely get it. And I think that's a really valid and useful way of thinking about it. And I think every designer will have their own approach about why they have mm. these three. Three is the magic number, obviously. Always. Um, <laughs> always. I, I don't know quite why. I think it's because we can hold three different people in our heads at once mm. and think about, because again, we're back to thought experiments. We're back to sort of scientific method or hypothesis. If we look at our three, I, in my case, I use my three to break down different parts of the game. So my first persona, I look at the mechanic of the game. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're the core player that I'm designing the game experience for but I want to scale the game so it's not just that one audience I want to be able to target other people so I want to think about the context loop so the sense of purpose and progression and that's where my second person comes in so let's say it's Annie and you know Annie is a game developer oh you know but you, you cool whatever that is um don't go down too far into stereotypes um <laughs> sorry. and then my third persona sorry i'm going, going crazy here. my third persona i'm looking at my metagame now by metagame what i mean is stuff that's not the game now i think the social interaction is the layer above the game mechanics you know mm. it's it's not the purpose of progression itself it's a layer above that in my head but i also think about the lifestyle fit so a lot of stuff you mentioned about ability to play comes into my lifestyle fit. I, I, type, I type into that a little bit more in terms of the mode of use of the device as well. So if mm -hmm. I'm designing for a, for a phone, that will have a different element in what I call the metagame than a PC experience. Even yeah, if it's absolutely. Just, yeah, even if it's just the time spent playing, you know, if you think about how much time you dedicate to setting up a PC versus your phone, completely different experience. But I'm also looking at cultural... Uh, zeitgeist moment so you know why would somebody use this game as an esport if it's relevant or why would they you know twitch stream it so i think these use of these personas these types of personalities once we can humanize them once we can make them real we can start using them as really powerful ways of thinking about the design of the game in general mm -hmm. it, I mean, how how do you use your three types to help sort of with that kind of thinking of the game I, so I start with the, the free that I said, like depending on ability, and then I start yeah. building up the stories more and more, like how much time does this person have? What bit would they care about the most? And what I try to always look for is like, what is the common ground? Because that then for me easily becomes the core of the game. Again, with, with Elegos, it's all about the story. It's a very dark story. It's very much like Game of Thrones where, you know, there is no black and white. Everything is gray. <laughs> um, and it's very interesting then to see that, oh, actually all three people that I spoke about really care about an interesting story. So I know that no matter what I do, and this then feeds into design where all currency 
is based on, you know, the whole economy of the game is based on unlocking more of the narrative. And yeah, everything no, else totally. that you do, so see, you start to see how these things start to feed into the design that you're working on. Yeah. Um, but also the very useful thing about it then is you know what to tell marketing. You're already answering the question of why should anyone care about this game? And the answer is like, well, if you want to play, you know, if you want to play through, you know, Game of Thrones in ancient Greece, you should pick this up. Because I think a lot of people forget to simplify and even like just think about why people should care about that. It should be six words, no more. It needs to be your elevator pitch because you have usually about half a second, if not less, to win someone over. Yeah, no, yeah. well, you're even more radical than me on Elevator Pitch. I did a podcast with Chris, uh, uh, was it Chris? No, with, um, uh, with Adam uh, last week about the very topic of Elevator Pitch. And I said you had like um, eight seconds, uh, but apparently... Oh, that's I, too I, much. Not, not nowadays. Much, clearly. Not clearly. nowadays. I, I did, in my defense, I did say you go about two seconds, uh, and that's mostly the, the first visual. Um, but that's another subject. But let's step back on this because I think you've, you've really hit on a nail, nail on the head here. It's like it's it's understanding the person means that we can better understand the things that they care about, and if we understand the things that they care about, we can communicate. Now, I found the techniques like the five whys. So, for those who don't know, the idea is that you ask effectively, so what, five times for every answer you have for why someone should care, mm. because if you can sustain that. Funny yeah. series of five questions. You're hopefully onto something. Um, I mean, do you have a technique like that that you use to sort of make sure you know what the why is for that person? Yeah, same. We must have gone yeah. to the same school. <laughs> same school. Well, because the five whys is, is quite a well-known technique, and mm. um, but it's it's marketing people who seem to know that one more than designers. I don't know. What, I don't know. Maybe I'm any game designers yeah. listening to this. If you if you think I'm talking out of my hat, I've got a hat after all. Um, please tell us if you if you knew the five whys. Great, I'd love to know if that's if that's common amongst designers as well. Um, but I think it's also interesting for audiences, and I think back to your marketing teams, is are they addressable? So one of the things I found to my cost mm. is I don't I didn't always think about how addressable that audience was so I might have found an audience but unless I can find them unless I can actually target them unless I can communicate to them it's not any use the example is the Rocky Horror Show mm. so I had the license for making a game based on Rocky Horror Show and I did a Kickstarter in 2014 16 16 I think it was 16. Uh, ago. Yeah, so uh, forever ago. And we were successful and we started making the game and we ran out of money and it failed. And part of the reason we ran out of money and it failed is because the Rocky Horror fan base is kind of 10% of everybody. <laughs> the common, the only common factor mm. of Rocky Horror is that they like Rocky Horror. Mm. So that makes it really difficult to target people because you don't know where you're going to go. Now, obviously, we tapped into the, the fan base, and that's great. But there's a lot of people who are not died in the wall, members of you know the, the fan base, the fan club. They wouldn't uh, spend yeah. a tenner on the game. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that makes it right. I still want to finish that game, by the way, because I'm a ridiculous fan. Um, and I still like the idea of making a rhythm action dance game. If only Space Ape did one. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think it's like in these kind of situations, it's worth having a really good think about like, why is that appealing to people if that's what yes. you're leveraging? Because I, I was, I'll never forget, this is one of the biggest regrets in my life, playing uh, Fortnite's early open alpha. And I remember playing it and being like, yeah, this is all right. I don't see many people picking it up. <laughs> I'll never forget wow. it. I'll never forget it. And then like looking back looking back at that, you start to realize that they really figured out something that appeals to pretty much everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because it's it's a game where even I I used to be good. I used to well, not good. I've never been good. I've, I used to be okay, passable. Yeah. But I can still come second without shooting anybody else because I'm really good at hiding. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I can have fun playing yeah. Fortnite and hide and seek. Actually, ironically, I'm better at PUBG on mobile than I am at almost any other first-person shooter nowadays. I don't ask me why. Um, but um, so my story about getting involved early with first-person shooters was Counter-Strike. And I, I bore, if I'm boring you because you've heard me tell this story lots of times, I apologize. Give me two seconds because I like to say it. So I saved Counter-Strike. Now, that's not quite true. It's kind of true. They ran out of money before they got bought by Valve. I bought them some new computers. And three of our guys got their names in the credits as a result. But not me. And I'm still oh. bitter. Uh, but it's, to be honest, I'm not really bitter. I just like this. It's just a fun story that I missed out on being on the credits because the three people who actually did the work testing the game on our service they got their names in the credits and i still am really proud that i've had that i can have that one little tiny bit of trivia on that game because when you saw how that game worked mm. and the audience it was designed for and the experience and the way that community built and we're here 20 plus years 22 ish years since that original concept of the game yeah. and it's still being played they got something really right yeah. Because they tapped into a need, a, a desire for a more meaningful shooter than, than at the time, the Quake and the Unreals. Yeah. So I think that's why we want to think about audiences. Because when we get a deep understanding of who and why, we end up with these better experiences, you know, I think deeper, more richer experiences for players. Yeah, I, I think, and that that is, by the way, something that I feel like, especially triple a game developers are forgetting a little bit and there is like so much focus on fidelity and beauty and realism and all of the art things that i'm just like but people play games because of the gameplay then you look at games from from something like minecraft to something like chess to something like you know cs and csgo and people have been or, or you know you know like they they are just in love with the gameplay and there is something about the gameplay that really clicks with them like there is so many games out there at the moment that are gorgeous they're absolutely stunning but it's a playable movie that's not a game if you know you tell me to press you know you take me for this amazing sequence and then you pause the sequence and it's just like now you press the button and i'm like oh my god the first thing i did 20 minutes i have got to press this button so well you know, like... Although that could go very badly wrong. So my 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 worst experience, I think, was I can't remember if it was Final Fantasy or Watch Dogs. It may have been both. And I spent like the first twenty minutes. It felt like of just pressing the X button with no. I mean, had it been going to get the timing right, that's a different subject. <laughs> just press X to continue. X to continue. X. To continue. I don't want to read your game. I want to play it. Sorry. That's just... It's, it's, do you know what? It's something I, I, I notice quite a lot about how much uh, voice game designers are given and that, that you know, changing depending on the size of the studio because yeah. every game designer that you talk to, they know how to design, design tutorials, they know how to do level design and all of these kind of things. And then they get pushed a little bit further back, a little bit further back and it's like, oh, but we need to get like th these bits in the game and those bits in the game. And I find it like we need to keep bringing back the conversation to gameplay just because um, you can have you can have a game without art. And there is many games yeah. out there that are, you know, they, they have one programmer who's done one thing with three pixels and people play to death. But you, you can't have a game without gameplay. You, yeah. you can make a very beautiful immersive experience. Well, um, you could argue but... that there are plenty of things out there which are exactly that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but actually, then then is the gameplay the walking um, simulator in the you know kind of if you, you could argue the walking simulator ah. kind of games is purely a gallery like experience where you're revealing well, information. Is that gameplay? Yes, absolutely. It's yeah. just more of it is happening in the player's mind than than in the game itself. So actually. Oh. I have Love a friend who, who is a very, very big fan of um, yeah. Walking Sims, and we've had this conversation yeah. many, many times. So it's, it's again, it's thought about like, what will the person who pays for this go through in their mind? And that is yes. a very valid thing. And, you know, yes. Walking Sims are one of those games that one are usually quite short, so they're good to 
play on an evening, especially if you have a busy life. And second, they're great introduction kind of games to gaming to people who don't have necessarily you know the skill so your moms and your sisters and you know your brother who's more interested in fifa than anything else all of all of these things are are very valid it's just i i find like a lot of big studios sometimes dumb games down to make it more accessible to everyone 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 but you make it so accessible that, to everyone that it's for no one yes exactly and i think that's one of the reasons why i think this whole topic is so important because when you're when someone's pitch, so big indie pitcher or uh, or someone's pitching us for publishing, um, they will show us a game and I will ask them who is it for and they go, um, people are like first person shooters. That's that's uh, still better than what I've seen, by the way. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the other one I think uh, it's it's the eighteen to twenty four male first person shooter like cliche that I find okay, yeah. particularly when you're talking about. When the, the largest audience of uh, games right now are probably 35 to 45 year old women playing casual games but you know yeah. what well, who am I, I who am I to judge you know I'm, I find it interesting if someone comes with like the stereotype of uh, an audience I'm very interested then to be like okay so what is your marketing strategy because like sometimes people can, yeah. can put can put you know a rabbit out of a hat and sometimes you look at the marketing strategy and you're like whoa actually i have never thought about talking to these people in this way this is genius yeah let's let's throw some money at this person and like let, let's make this happen yeah but let, let's be honest most of the time you ask them what the marketing strategy is, is they say isn't that your job <laughs> the, like, the what <laughs> is, yeah the, the, the marketing oh then, that's the evil thing isn't it that's the evil thing that evil people yeah. do <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like it's where your soul gets removed and then given yeah. back to you at the end. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. The one who's oh, that's the one whose fault it is when it doesn't work. Sorry, that's that's. Oh, I, I remember. I remember being in uh, Sony, and uh, I remember there was a lot of historical kind of legacy of uh, people feeling like frustrated with. It wasn't just Sony, but yes, in that AAA uh, environment not just anywhere across the piece there were lots of people in the industry who were going yeah marketing 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 and i'm sitting there as a marketing guy going um hang on a minute i might be a designer but it's like marketing's quite good really anyway um see see the thing is i find with marketing um we we used to have this running joke it's like when it's good it's 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 you know the company when it's bad it's called marketing <laughs> Yeah, I, so my line, we definitely were at the same school there. Um, my my line was, it, it's marketing's fault. Um, if it's if it's success, it's the game or the company. If it's a failure, it's it's the marketing Mark. team. So my when anyone asked me what my job description was, my answer is it's my fault. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 very useful, and I think it's important here to say because we we spoke to, you know, we talked about all of these very big games and AAA and so on. Um, and I feel it's very important to say something about indies who, yeah. who are currently probably sitting here and being like, I have no marketing budget. Like I have a fiver to spend on like Google ads or something like that. Right. How is this relevant to me? And I would say to people like that, zone in so very carefully on your audience. Um, and, you know, don't focus on getting 10,000 people excited, focus on getting 10 people excited. And that gives you the luxury of actually being able to talk to people one-to-one. -one. Because yeah. if you get 10, and pardon me for the horrible term, but evangelists, then- That's a great term. To... I was an evangelist for Unity. I'm allowed to like that name. <laughs> I'm not, and honestly, I, I, can, I can almost see my boss listening to this and rolling his eyes and being like, there she goes again. <laughs> Um, but yeah, start 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 very small and get people excited and yeah. just keep focusing on those little one-to-one -one conversations. Focus on the communities that you exist and thrive in. Like it might be communities like Game Dev London. It might be your local book club. And, you know, you casually bring in a, a book like Ready Player One. It's like, how yeah. about we read? Oh, by the way, it relates to what I'm working at the moment. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I think to your point, I think that if you are an indie out there and you're going, well, what does it matter to me? Actually, it matters more to you in some ways because you have to have that much more personal connection because you're selling yourself as an identity. You're, you know, the reason why people like Rami and Mike and, you know, the other um, indies out there, you know, 
the reason why they're so successful is because they've built up a cult of personality around them in the nicest possible sense of that phrase. Yeah. Because they are out there, they're talking, they're being, they're putting themselves on the line, they're engaging. And the way that happens is by finding individuals they can talk to and, and, and having a what tone of voice. Them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. I, I think thinking about who that audience is, how you talk to them, what they want, is as valid if you're uh, a billion dollar studio or if you're trying to scrape two, you know, 50 pieces together to get your next Facebook ad. Um, yeah. It doesn't, it's, it's about making better decisions. Yeah. And I know there is a lot of people out there who, you know, in my experience, there is a lot of people in game dev who are very self-conscious about approaching other people and talking to other people. Mm-hmm. And my advice to them would be always start with like something that has common ground. Like mm-hmm. one of the best places that I tested out my game design ideas very early on before I even moved into game design was actually D&D. And I, I started oh. designing these like really stupid little one shots. And I was like, oh, what if we take the formula of D&D and I do like something completely different with it and just watch how my friends respond and see if they they play along or not and you know kind of like test out the ground a little bit because it's about building the confidence to be able to talk about what you care about like there is nothing more delightful um, than listening to someone talk who is passionate about what they're talking about like you can you can come to me and talk talk to variations of ferns in the northern hemisphere and if you're passionate genuinely passionate passionate about the, the, the forest fern and the, the sea ocean fern you will have my attention and you will have other people's attention like it charm is just people who know how to look passionate about things like whether it's other people <laughs> whether it's about plants birds computers it doesn't matter the hats so they wear. yeah exactly you're allowed to like what you like as long as it makes you happy happiness I, I is think, infectious I, I think you're my long separated uh, game design twin because you know you talked about D being where you start you started experimenting and i i i started oh. playing D when i was 10 and um, oh god ended up going to all the UK conventions. There, there was a UK game, Gen Con back in there. I used to basically run mm. improvised games in a science fiction world. I, I, that's what got me into the industry, was absolutely yeah. exploring what you could do. And um, I used to run uh, live action uh, kind of murder mystery star stuff with like 50 people. Oh, yeah. oh wow. Um, yeah, that must writing... have been fun. Oh, it's amazing. I, I haven't done it for 10 years. I need to get back to doing it. But what you, the stuff that you learn when you're trying to write a game that has got an audience of 50 people who are going to be playing yeah. simultaneously for four hours and it can't be any longer and it can't be any shorter yeah and you've got to structure it in a way where everybody feels they're empowered everyone feels that they know what's going on and they all feel like they're succeeding in their their objectives well the majority like my dad has my dad has taught me the best principle that has kept me sane all of these years which is no matter what you do at least 25% of people will not be happy about it. You might literally bring bring in chocolate cake to the office and there'll be someone who's like, I don't like chocolate. Chocolate, <laughs> no. Chocolate's poisonous. The, yeah, next, <laughs> next day you bring vanilla cake and there is someone like, vanilla. What's this? But you had chocolate yesterday. I missed out on that. <laughs> so don't don't over obsess about you know the, that twenty five percent that are not going to be happy about what you do. Like that that there lies madness. There lies Trying to please everyone indeed. is madness. <laughs> but that's again, I think, why we need to focus down on who we can please, and that's why always. This thought experiment we do at the beginning of a project to work out who we're trying to make a game for is so important. But also, I think why as you get more data it's important to kind of replace some of your assumptions i think one of the things i love is that when you accept that truth is an uncomfortable thing that needs to be embraced um you know i th- i find that you know the calluses that you get from holding this this uncomfortable shape of truth is incredibly helpful but it can be painful when you suddenly discover that you thought it was this you know um George characters uh, 35 and blah blah blah. It turns out it's nothing to do with George. It's it's um, Henry, who's a completely different type of personality and stuff like that. Once you work that out, once you accept it and, and and embrace it, actually start making even better decisions. Yeah, like I I find that often comes from playtests, and no matter how small or big your game is, test 
often and test loads because <laughs> and oh my god as early as you can and yeah. even if you think something is a failure test your failure because it might turn out it's not um and and you know as you're saying like gather gather that information gather that data and always remain open like don't none of your ideas are set in stone both like in terms of your marketing your design you know sometimes and this is why you have to test it sometimes you have to be if you think about it like be like a river where you know like you, when you look at the river it has a very set way of flowing but over time you can see that it's changed the way it's flowing and it's optimized its flow so be more like a river than than a stone at the bottom of the river completely uh, i mean the, the analogy i quite like is um if you think about the um i've lost my my thread there um but the, the river flow is a really nice one but i think it's it's about understanding why you want to make games in the first place and, and stepping back to them mm. and always kind of like embracing that test so for example if you can test the idea before you ever make anything you actually will improve and enhance that idea very quickly um so for example back to the hyper casual you know what do you do with hyper casual game you make you mock up 30 seconds of gameplay as a an ad and you test that before you even make the game there's no reason why you can't use that same mindset as long as you know what you're testing and each test has to test as few things as possible uh, actually i know what the analogy i was going to use was uh mythbusters i'm a massive oh. fan of mythbusters Oh, failure likewise. is always an option and it's it's not failure if you write it down it's not failure if you write it down absolutely it's not fair uh, that's the other one i love that so i mean to bring all this together so you know if you were trying to give somebody some advice on how to think about audiences what's your kind of like go-to top three things first of all um if you're struggling with abstract, go solid. So go to people you know and vice versa. If you're struggling with like, oh, I'm, I can't think about anyone else but me and my brother, for example, go abstract, go read some research, go read some data. So if you feel stuck, switch it on its head. Then the second thing I would say is think very, very much how these people are going to engage with whatever you're making. It's very incredibly useful to think about where, because that is something that can determine things like the complexity of your gameplay. It can, you know, what platform you're making, because sometimes you might be like, oh, actually I had this idea, which is about something like Super Smash Brothers, but it's a lot quicker. Um, and it's like, kind of like with the Pokemon Go element, and suddenly you're like, oh, you know, this is a mobile game. Like this is a game that someone can play on their commute. Wait a second, like who commutes? You know, and, and that's like, start giving you that information. Um, and then the, the final thing is, you know, test. Like it's, it's one of the things that I noticed most often, especially with like more junior people is like, they, they have their ideas and, and they hide them because they, they, they're not done yet. They're not done yet. They're, they're almost done. They're not done yet. And once they're done, they're going to show you the thing that's going to change the industry. Completely. <laughs> and, you're just sitting, and you're just sitting there like, show me. <laughs> Can you please show me? Just, just show, yeah. Uh, so Don't I, do I, that. I, I, the idea that you might steal the ideas as well. That's like what I was called. And yeah, it's, it's feasible. But the reality is that most people will not steal your ideas unless it's already making hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Just because there's other ideas out there already making money. Why would I copy yours, not the ones that are already making money? Yeah, it's uh, testing and being open and showing it to people, prototyping a lot, um, and kind of like... It fundamentally it all leads back to the fear of failure. Yeah. But there is no such concept as a failure. Failure is something that occurs in your mind rather than in whatever you're working. Because if you make something and it's not working, then you can dissect it and approach it with why is this not working? And this place applies again to design and to marketing. You know, you yeah. test out the marketing strategy, it doesn't work. 
failure is a very toxic concept in itself because it it paralyzes you and puts you down and you're like i'm not gonna try this again it really hurt when it didn't work but when you look at it it's like okay i've connected three wires is currency running for the wires yes or no and pretty much everything boils down to to that so don't don't think of yourself as a failure don't think about your project as a failure i have you know you were saying about how you have ten thousand board games that you're sitting on and they'll never get finished but you didn't call them a failure no no you know, definitely not they have led you to something else they were stages exactly. of development of something else i have probably about 100 unity projects <laughs> just sitting there you know so in some i've put about 100 hours in some i've put about 10 minutes but it's been like yeah. okay you know, I needed to get out of my system. That's my Lego. Yeah, exactly. It's your Lego. That's a good way of putting it. I think the the, the crux here is that um, I want to kill projects. I actively want to kill projects as soon as possible because I can move on and take the lessons I've learned from that project and apply it to something else, which yeah. will have more chance of being whatever successful looks like. Um, yeah. You know, that to me is that's it's just part of the iteration process and i think if we are if we're is there's anything we've learned from games is iteration is everything you know i i think I anyway i think one company that's really good to talk about and one project in particular is mediatonic and mm. you know fall guys oh, yeah. because yeah. everyone's like ah fall guys like came from the ether and there there was nothing before and then you look at you look at uh, mediatonic's like uh wikipedia page and you look at 150 titles they did before that um and then you uh their their fantastic community manager ollie did, yeah. did a twitter thread of how he engaged with the audience and everything else and that the core of that was that that very simple thing where Fall Guys was essentially essentially Takeshi's Castle, the game. Yeah. And yeah, so okay. many people had such a either like a re proper relationship with Takeshi's Castle because they watched it as a kid, as they were kids, or they watched it back in the 80s or whenever. But then there were all the clips from Takeshi's Castle on YouTube that like people like me, I've never seen the show when it first aired on TV, but you yeah. came across it and you know dissecting that why does that feel fun you know and it's like oh it's very silly and you yeah. know like one of the core things about games like you know fall guys it's you know it's not the puzzles that you solve it's how silly the game itself is well for us as well as the Kesha's castle there was an older one called uh, it's a knockout back in the 70s oh, yeah. you know which was e people were dressing up in stupid costumes and running into each other and doing stupid things oh, there uh, you that so this is this is a history, a legacy of all sorts of, you know, even up to the um, what's the stupid uh, ninjury one that they're doing at the moment? Yeah, these oh. incredibly like intense ninja extreme kind of versions of I know what is essentially <laughs> the same thing, but not with yeah. costumes. Yeah, so, it was a, such a solid concept from the get go. Yeah. Oh, exactly, and I think so. I, I think all that makes sense to me. I mean, it, the bottom line is that if we can. So anyway, let's talk about my my two things. I like to chuck them in. Um, I quite liked your kind of talking about kind of how and where and when. I, I kind of like that the uh, the who, where, when of it is really interesting. So you know who is it? Um, you know, and coming up with a hypothesis that you can nail down and and replace that hypothesis with data. I think that's really good. Um, the kind of uh, where and when is an interesting one as well. But um, if you think when you're thinking about the time slot in the life stage of the player you know where are they what they're doing what's their daily routine like um mm -hmm. where are you going to find them online there's a lot of interesting things around that that you could explore but i also yeah. like the why when we talked about why in a lot of detail i think why is is the kind of mother load of um uh, of all of the questions we should ask ourselves um i think you know the more often we use five whys to just Stop us, you know, eating our own uh, BS, you know, the, the, the better, you know, I am full of BS. I need to ask myself why something matters far too often. Um, and I think it's a really useful exercise and not humbling, but it's um, just keeps you grounded if you start asking why more often. Um, and I find, by the way, the five whys also work for a lot of people that are not confident at all. Like yeah. you see, it, especially with marginalized folks, um, there is this fear of you know 
bringing up whatever you have to the attention. So it's the same thing. Do the five whys. Test out if your product is solid. And if you know that you have a solid product, that's where you're going to find the confidence to talk to someone else about it. So it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant way that works both ways. If you think you're like the greatest programmer ever in existence, it will knock you down. If you think yeah. that your idea is not worth anything, it will build you up. No, exactly right. And I think that's that's a superb technique. I hadn't even thought about it that way. Um because I'm here yeah, I'm here. It's a it's a ladder, isn't it? It's a staircase. Yeah, it a you can go down yeah. it, you can go up it. And you can go up it. It's really nice. I like it a lot. On that note, I'm gonna thank you for that. I think that's been fantastic. Hopefully people have got a lot out of it. I'd thank love so to sort of hard. um Oh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, what should people know about you? How should they get hold of you? And uh, yeah, tell tell people about what what you're up to and uh, you know how people should get hold of you. Yeah, most of all, I'm on Twitter, so I, I think my handle is displayed. Um, especially if you need to talk to someone and you're stuck in a space, definitely give me a shout. Like I'm a massive believer in you know uplifting each other, so let me know. Um, if you need someone to check your pitch, if I have the time, I'll definitely do it. Um, and vice versa, if you're someone in a position where you think you have something to share with the world, definitely you know put put your help out there. There's a lot of people who massively appreciate it, especially young devs. And there's some great um, platforms out there and groups out there, particularly in the games industry, that are specifically trying to support people with, you know, diversity and inclusion in particular. But more generally, just, you know, because, you know, whatever your background is, whatever your identity is, you know, games are a fantastic medium to be able to communicate ideas and engage with people. And I think the more we embrace that, the more we embrace people and help people feel confident in doing that, the better. Um, so that I think is great. Um, so on that note, I'm going to say thank you very much. And uh, what we'll do is I will just quickly uh, transition to an outro. Um, so I've been Oscar Clark. Uh, I'm uh, been your host for this particular Game Dev London session. I've been delighted to talk to Annie about the audience and try to explore everything we dared to understand about who the player is. And hopefully you've got something out of some techniques that we learned, particularly around things like the five whys, and also the ability to sort of use abstract concept as well as real people to help inspire you and inspire the decisions that you want to make when you're trying to decide the best approach for your game. Uh, that's what we're about here. We're trying to help us all make better games. I hope you, you've enjoyed it and hopefully you'll be back next time for the next podcast with Game Dev London. Mm -hmm.